You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Be very aware of your desire to be right and your dislike of being wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I am Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Later in the show, we've got my interview with writer Ben Yagoda about cognitive biases. And we are back. Uh, Joe, we've got some great stories to share this week. But first, uh, we love our listeners. We and, uh, they, uh, We got a letter in the mail this week, this past week. Yeah, uh, it's actually, a postcard. Yeah. To describe to us what we got here. On the picture side of the postcard, I'm looking at a very handsome Amish man uh-huh. who is smirking knowingly. And on the reverse side, I see a message here. It says uh, it's addressed to us here at the Cyberwire. It says, greetings, English. Please type the following at your command prompt. 4 slash R, quote, C colon backslash, end quote, percent sign, percent sign, V, open parentheses, star dot doc, comma, star dot doc X, comma, star dot XLS X, close parentheses, do R-E-N, quote, percent sign, percent sign, V, close quote, quote, percent sign, percent sign, tilde, nxv.ransom, close quote. Then press enter. Thank you for running Amish ransomware. <laughs> anyway, it was a long time getting there, but... Uh... Right. <laughs> Maybe I should just say it's, uh, it's a long string that essentially renames all your doc files to something else. And... <laughs> I see. That's what it does. Welcome right. to Amish ransomware. Yeah. I guess it's uh, not very sporting of us to make fun of the Amish, but... They don't listen to podcasts, so I guess as far as okay. we know, I did see an Amish guy using email once, though. All right. I, want, I wish so bad at that point in time I had a camera phone, but I didn't. Well, there you go. So whoever sent that in to us, they did not put a return address on it. It actually doesn't even have a, a postmark on it. So. Right. How am I going to get them my Bitcoin? <sighs> Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. what I'd like to know. Well, thanks for sending that in. Uh, Joe, why don't you kick things off this week? What do you have for us in terms of stories? So last week I said I would talk about this because I don't know if it's clear for a lot of our, our listeners. Our technical listeners may understand what I'm about to talk about, but our non-technical listeners, this may be new information to. Mm. And I want to talk about URLs okay, and how they work. Basically, I'm going to stick to the conversation about web-based URLs, HTTP and HTTPS. So this is how you go to a web – the thing you type in to go to a website. Exactly. So they follow a very regular structure. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that they have, they will start with the characters either HTTP or HTTPS. And these will indicate whether you're going to use Hypertext Transfer Protocol or Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure. Of course they do. Right. It it just basically means that if you have an S after the HTTP, it means that you're going to use a try to use a secure connection. Then it will be followed by a colon. Sometimes you'll see other URLs that start with like FTP. That's a file transfer protocol. You might actually see Telnet colon, but most of the time you're going to see HTTP and HTTPS. Immediately following that, there's usually two slashes. And those tell your web browser that we're going to be looking for a computer, another host, uh, the server you can think of it, even though technically the server is the software that runs on the machine 
that you're going to be talking to. Okay. And in there, there will be one of two things. There will either be an IP address or there will be a named domain. And these are things like www.thecyberwire.com or www.google.com or www.facebook.com. And what that is, it's a way for humans to know how to find a resource because humans are not very good at remembering numbers. So if I tell you, go to my IP address, it's this number dot this number dot this number dot this number. You're never going to remember that. It's like trying to remember a phone number. And we don't even need to do that anymore. Right. right? We don't. (laughs) So there's a tool which I'm not going to go into called Domain Name Service or DNS that actually resolves. The process is called resolving the human readable name to an IP address so that your computer then knows how to connect to it. So the IP address is the actual map to where the server lives. It is assigned an IP address, and that's the real way for other computers to connect to it. Correct, because there's these things called routes that the network has and is cognizant of, and those routes are all based on IP addresses. Okay. They have nothing to do with names. So if I tell a computer, go find cyberwire.com, it doesn't have any cognizance of a route to that computer. It has Hmm. to have the IP address in order to get the route. So that goes and gets translated to a, an IP address. A and domain gets translated to an IP address. And correct. off we go. And off we go. Yep. And we're off to the races. That's a very complicated process, but we're not going to go into that. Okay. Following the domain, you may see a colon followed by some numbers. Mm. Okay. Now, this is what's called a TCP port or a UDP port. It's a port number on the computer, and there are 65,000 available ports on any given computer. And these are where services or servers will actually run, and they will listen on these individual ports. Once the information arrives at this host, the next thing the host says is who's listening for this piece of information. And the way it derives that is by the port number. If you see a port number in a web-based URL, that should raise a red flag. Oh. Okay. Because there are default port numbers. Everything has to have a port number. If I'm going to send you to an HTTP address, the default port is 80, but I don't need to enter that into the URL. The URL can be simplified by leaving it off. Right, it's and assumed. If, it's assumed, exactly. Okay. And if the protocol is HTTPS, then the default port is 443. Why would somebody run on a non-standard port. Hmm. There are lots of reasons. We used to do it all the time when we were developing applications, web Hmm. applications, because our development server would have like three different instances of the software. So we'd connect to different ports and we didn't have to buy different machines. But if I have compromised a company's site, I may want to hide on that company's site and just start another web server that listens on, say, port 8080. Right. And now you're actually going to that company's site, but you're going to a non-standard address. You're going to port 8080 and you're going to a completely different service on that computer than the standard web service. So the domain name will be accurate. The domain name could be accurate. But it's not taking me not taking me to where I think I'm going. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. So if I see those port numbers, should I strip them off as a as a routine sort of thing to do? It depends on the situation. You know, but generally speaking, if you see port numbers and you're not technical, I wouldn't even visit the web page. I see port numbers after the domain name here. So if it says www.someplace.com colon 8080, I would avoid going to that place. Hmm. Okay. Period. Interesting. Okay. So after the domain with or without a port number, you'll see a series of slashes and other characters like it may look like a directory structure and that's exactly what it is. These oh, are just yeah. essentially folders and files on the server that or on the host that are going to be used to reference a particular file that you're going to access. Right. And that's the file locator. And then after that, there may be a question mark. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. Right. Now, the question mark begins the 
query string, and it's the last part of a of a URL. Inside the query string, you'll see a series of what we call key value pairs. So it will say like some term, and then it'll have an equal sign, and it will have some other set of characters after it. Yeah. And then it will have an ampersand. The ampersand denotes here's another key value pair. Okay, so for example, I go to google.com mm-hmm. slash search. And then it has a question mark and it says Q equals this plus is plus a plus test, which is the search string that I'm looking for. So Q is obviously a variable for the search. Then there's an ampersand and there's something that says RLZ equals and then has another value in there. And then there's another ampersand and it says OQ equals this plus is plus a plus test. I'm going to guess that means original query. Okay. This can go on for the entire length of a URL, I believe up to 4K of characters. So yeah. there's a lot of information that can be crammed into a URL. Yeah, and you see this a lot. A lot of all sorts of stuff after that question mark. I right. see that all the time. Yes. And that's the tracking stuff, right? A lot of the tracking information can reside right up there. Exactly. Because yep. I usually, like if I'm sharing a URL and I see a bunch of stuff after a question mark, I'll usually trim all that stuff out. Right. Test the URL to make sure it still works. And then that's and then that's what I'll send out. Yeah, me too. To oh. avoid that tracking. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do that as well. Now, here's here's a little bit of social engineering stuff that, that can happen with a URL. And I've put the URL in our file here that we're looking at. So the URL reads like this. It is http colon slash slash www.google.com and at sign thecyberwire.com. And if you click on that link, it will take you to thecyberwire.com. Yes, it does. Okay. So what this is, is this is an abuse of an email URL. An email URL will look like mail to colon username an at symbol and then a domain. Right. So because I've specified HTTP here, it tries to look it up like a server. And Once it sees that there's an at sign, it says, well, this user has entered an email address and it disregards everything in front of that at sign. Mm. So let's flash back to last week. We were talking about DHL and their shipping information. If I craft a URL that says HTTP colon slash slash www.dhl.com at www.joesmaliciouscite.com and then have all the other query information after that then you might look at that URL and go, well, this actually does go to to DHL.com. But there's an at sign there. And the at sign makes it get evaluated as an email address. So then everything before the at sign is disregarded and you just go to joesmaliciousite.com where you get all kinds of malware and other stuff installed. Yeah, and I can imagine someone, you know, forming this to say, have everything after the at sign look like something that be, would be related to the original site, like it could be, you know, customer service helpers.com, right? right so it would say, right. it would say google.com at customer service helpers.com. And I'd think, oh, well, this must be customer service for Google. But no, it's it has nothing to do with Google. Exactly. And customer service helpers.com is, of course, a malicious site. Right. 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 So uh, I can go out and buy domain names relatively cheaply and then do terrible things with those domains with mm-hmm. exactly this this kind of thing. So this goes back to what you said last week. What I should have said at the very beginning of getting one of those phishing emails, just go to the website using your own fingers and type in the address or use your own bookmark that you have. Right. Don't click on the link in the email. Yeah. Good advice. All right. Well, it's it's good stuff. It's a lot to take in, but uh, it's, it is it's kind worth of a lot knowing. To take in. You can look it up on Wikipedia and, and get a better understanding of how it works. The Wikipedia article is not really layman friendly, I don't think. <laughs> um, so I tried to try to simplify it here. 
No, it's a good overview. All right. Well, uh, Joe, uh, this week, my story, you know, we've got Thanksgiving is behind us. And so we are full throttle into the holiday season. And that means... uh, (laughs) We are now. We are now, yeah. Uh, so and now, now are you okay with it being Christmas time? Uh, I am now. <laughs> I am on board. I like the Christmas music on the radio. I like the decorations going up, but I am definitely one of those people who resents it all going up before Thanksgiving. I think each holiday, you know, you got you Should got have your, its own period. Yeah, yeah. You got your Halloween, and then Halloween ends, and now we're in Thanksgiving season. Yep. And then Thanksgiving ends, and now it's... Santa's turn. I actually agree with you 100%. <laughs> so uh, with the holidays in full throttle here, it means that uh, scammers are going to be out looking to take advantage of all that additional shopping traffic. Absolutely. And of course, one of the ways they're going to do that is through credit card skimming. Now, I was uh, over at Chris Hadnagy's website. This is social-engineer.org. Of course, Chris has been a guest a couple of times on our show. Yes, he has. And they publish a regular newsletter. It's their social engineer newsletter. And they have a really good guide here, a whole newsletter dedicated to protecting yourself against some of these skimming attacks. So it's a really interesting article here. It's called, Are You Being Skimmed? And skimming certainly is nothing new, but there are some things in here that I had not seen anywhere else or things I had not considered. And of course, there there are different places that you can get skimmed. You can get skimmed at the ATM and want to be able to look out to see if someone has put a a skimming device over top of the main credit card reading or bank card reading device on yeah, the machine. These, they have a picture here in this article. The skimmer looks exactly like the surface of the ATM. Right. And it looks like it would be hard to detect. Yeah. And they say, you know, wiggle it, make sure that it's uh, solid on there. But I think a particular interest is uh, being skimmed at gas pumps mm-hmm. because for whatever reason, the gas stations were able to lobby the credit card companies to sort of drag their feet when it comes to installing chip and pin yep. systems on their gas pumps. Indeed. And they, they made the case that it's going to cost a lot of money to turn those over. So I think they've got till 2020 to turn those over. So they have a longer time period with the PCI requirements to to go to that chip and pin system than anybody else does. Exactly. And here we are about a year and a month away from the deadline, right? And I still don't see a lot of chip and pin at uh, gasoline pumps. No, I, I have yet to see one at a gas pump. And one of the things that this article points out is that the folks who are hitting up these gas pumps, they're actually installing the skimming equipment inside the gas pump. Right. So they get a key to open up the pump. They install the electronics. The uh, more sophisticated versions of these electronics, ha- they have GSM built in. They just phone the information back to the bad guys. Right. Some so, of them have Bluetooth built in. So the bad guy only has to get into the machine once. Right. He doesn't have to go back again to incriminate himself to collect the information. The information is just available to him either over the cellular network or over a Bluetooth connection. Yeah, exactly. I was actually talking to uh, one of the local police officers here. I'm hoping to get him on the show soon. He deals with scams and people trying to take advantage of seniors. And he was saying that he actually will not pay anything but cash at a gas station. Really? Yeah. He just won't do it because gas stations are so susceptible to this and they've seen it so many times and there's really no way to tell he only pays cash at gas stations. Now, there's a couple tips here, a couple things I hadn't really thought of that I think are interesting. One of the things they suggest is use well-lit pumps closest to the store. Uh as they're more easily monitored by staff. Now, that's a great idea. If you've got a a line of pumps there, usually there's one that's the one, you know, the person inside the store can look out and and see. see. If I'm a bad guy, 
I don't want to put a skimmer on that. That's one. the last one I'm going to put a skimmer on because right. it's in plain view of the people inside the store. So that's that's a good idea. I would um, agree. Obviously, look for uh, tampering, that sort of stuff. Use cash or, or pay inside. Right. Uh, cover your pin because a part of these attacks is they'll also put some sort of video camera either nearby or on the device itself right. so that they look for your pin number. Use a credit card instead of a debit card. I like that one. That's my that's my methodology. Yeah, yeah, cuz uh, when you use a credit card, you the odds are much better that you can get your money back right. if it's cuz first taken off away. it's not your money going going into the fraudster's pocket to begin with. It's right. the, the credit card company's money. And they say if if you're a sophisticated user, and then I would say this is a uh, well someone like you Right. Uh, you can search for suspicious Bluetooth devices at ATMs and gas pumps. I'd say that's a little past uh, the pay grade of most people. Right. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> if you want to be a you good... You need to turn... Probably get an app on your phone that searches for Bluetooth yeah, devices. Yeah. You want to be a good Samaritan, I suppose you could do that. But who knows? Because yeah. they're they're not going to... They're probably not going to name the Bluetooth access point crooks stealing money. Right. Do they, do they mention <laughs> seals? Look for seals? They do. Okay. Yeah. Look for seals. But again, you know, if, if I'm a crook, how hard would it be for me to get a roll of that seal tape? Uh, yeah, it's probably true. You know, it's, but that's, that's what I do is I do actually look for the seals. They're numbered usually. And they have the logo of the company, but you're 100 correct. I could I could go to some cheap web based place and just print off a roll of things that look like security seals. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, buyer beware if you can. Obviously, this this season, uh, if use places that have the chip and pin, the tokenization of your card with a chip and pin device, it's, it gets encrypted and sent off. It's much safer than when you're swiping it. Also, uh, things like Apple Pay and Android Pay, those are tokenized, and so. Yep. Those are much more secure than swiping that card yes. at a retail place or in a uh, an ATM or at a gas pump. So Agreed. Lots of good tips here, so do check it out. It's on the social-engineering.org website. And, of course, thanks to our friend Chris Hadnagy for putting this information out there. Doing good work, Chris. Yep. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, this week's Catch of the Day was sent in from a listener named Steve, and he says, Hi, Dave and Joe. Hi, Steve. I enjoy listening to your podcast as I travel between clients. I thought I would share with you a recent email that I received from a friend who wanted to warn me about a fraud, but was also trying to help me to get those often promised riches. <laughs> Please keep up the good work. Best regards, Steve, from across the pond. Steve is from the UK. We're not going to do a UK accent this week. <laughs> no, we're not. We're going to spare. We'll spare our listeners this time. Okay. <laughs> so this is uh, the subject of this email is the truth about your fund here in Africa. This is from Barrister Sam A. Mutako. I believe Steve works in the financial services industry, mm -hmm. so this is targeted towards him. And says, greetings. After a serious thought, I decided to contact you because you was deceived about your fund. That is why it is impossible for you to succeed in completing the process after several payments. I will be very open to tell you that all info you received so far was all lies and that it is about extorting money from you. I know that you will be surprised to receive this massage, but this is nothing but the truth. It is a planned work with some of the officials, but the manager is not aware. After all, the evil they went to the bank manager trying to divert the fund. The manager refuses to accept the idea. The manager said he want to talk to you before he can release the fund. That is to make sure that you authorize the transfer to a different account. I will personally direct you to the appointed paying bank where you will be paid instead of wasting your hard-earned money and time on these hoodlums. But before then, you must not disclose my info to anybody because this is top secret. Kindly send your reply to me via this email. 
And then he has his email address, and it's from Barrister Sam A. Mutako. Esquire. Esquire. <laughs> that is right. So, so you know. So there's a little added bit of legitimacy there. Right. A little bit of everything in here. Because uh, <laughs> only an Esquire can put a parenthesis ESQ dot parenthesis after his name. That's right. It's the law. So thanks for sending this in to us, Steve. This is a good one. My favorite part is that uh, I know you're going to be uh, surprised to receive this massage. Right. I know I'm always surprised when I receive an unsolicited massage. Me too. Uh, yeah. So not, not, <laughs> not, not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, it does leave me surprised. Uh, so, all right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Ben Yagoda. He's a freelance writer. He recently penned an article titled Your Lying Mind, Cognitive Biases Tricking Your Brain. That was published in The Atlantic. So we'll hear from him in just a moment. And we are back. Joe, I recently spoke with Ben Yagoda. He's a freelance writer. And his article, Your Lying Mind, Cognitive Biases Tricking Your Brain, was published in The Atlantic. Some interesting stuff here. Here's my conversation with Ben Yagoda. One thing that had gotten a lot of attention in recent years actually grew out of the Iraq war and the mistaken idea that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which according to everything I've read, of course, wasn't true, but wasn't kind of a cynical ploy by the American government to put that out there. The people in the CIA and intelligence agencies actually strongly believed or were convinced that that this was the case. And there was a lot of, uh, after that event, there was a lot of analysis and trying to figure out exactly why and how that had happened. And in fact, the conclusion was a lot of it had to do with, with cognitive biases, specifically this very important one known as confirmation bias, part of which says that if you or I or any human has a conviction or a belief, he or she will, will thereupon do everything that, that we can to, <laughs> to hold on and justify that belief. So every piece of evidence will kind of read as confirming it, hence confirmation bias. If something comes up that seems to contradict it, we'll either discount that or figure out some way to, to prove to ourselves that it actually proves what we already believe. And that seems to be a lot of what happened with this idea of the weapons of mass destruction, that we knew that Saddam Hussein had had them in the past. Uh, he was a bad guy. So we were convinced that he did. And, and every piece of evidence, our analysts viewed in that direction. So obviously, that's not a good way to conduct an intelligence operation. And so uh, the government put out some money and requests for proposals and focused in on the idea of so-called serious games, serious video games that could be used in training for analysts to counter these biases. And there was a kind of competition. Um, several groups of, of scholars and researchers put together these games. And the one that seemed to have the best results was one called Missing. So I actually got a hold of and played that game. Another thing I did was work with a psychologist named Richard Nisbet who's active in the field. And he's kind of an optimist in the along the idea of can cognitive biases be overcome with the idea that with training and um, instruction, some of them really can. And he points to examples such as the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is the idea that if we put in some money or time or effort to some endeavor, 
and it seems to be going really badly. The sunk cost fallacy tells us, well, stick it out because you've already put in so much money, time, or effort in, and you don't want that to go to waste, which is really, as I say, a fallacy that, you know, if you're going to uh, the movies and you've spent $10 for your ticket and you've watched 40 minutes and the movie is disaster, it's boring, unpleasant, painful to sit through, uh, the idea of sitting through another hour just because you paid the $10 is ridiculous. I mean, you've already paid the money. And so would you choose to spend the next hour of your life in this painful situation of going outside and having a nice walk in the park? You've paid to have a bad time. You've paid to have a bad time. And do you really want to uh, have more, <laughs> more <laughs> bad time? So Nisbet points to the fact, as he says, that economists who understand this routinely walk out of bad movies and if they order a terrible meal in a restaurant, they don't necessarily walk out. But once they've eaten a few bites enough to know that it's bad, they either send it back or just don't eat the rest. Whereas the rest of us with the sunk cost fallacy sort of tough it out and say, well, I'm going to do the rest of it. So he says, if economists can learn this, why can't the rest of us? So I took his course. He has a course on the Coursera platform. And I read his book and tried to see if it would make me a better thinker and less subject to some of these fallacies. Yeah. You know, on this show, we talk about uh, social engineering and, and people using some of these techniques for bad things to take advantage of people to steal from them. Um, how, how does the, the things you learned in your journey here, how do you suppose that informs what you know about that? Or are you more um, uh, tuned in to email scams and, and things like that? Well, I'm not sure about the email scams. One thing that does come to mind about, and it's it's not it's more benign than than a terrible phishing scam, but something known as the anchoring effect, which is our habit of mind that if we hear uh, on the one hand a large number or on the other hand a small number, that will sort of reset our whole expectation for numbers in general. Hmm. So that's why good negotiators start off with, if they're trying to sell something, a total highball number that the person they're negotiating with might not um, accept that, but that'll at least set the stage for a final number that's higher than it maybe should be. And on a smaller level, uh, restaurant menus, <laughs> sometimes there'll be, you know, a ridiculously high priced veal chop for like, you know, $55. And you'll say, no, I wouldn't spend that. But then there'll be a $45 fillet of sole. And you say, well, that's that's reasonable. Um, that's $10 less than the high number. So that, that'll be fine. I'll pay for that. When if there hadn't been that $55 veal chop, you never would have spent $45 for an entree. That's a, a more benign way that people try to take advantage of us. And it's something that we certainly can be aware of both in restaurants in, in, and when we try to sell our house or buy a house. Do you have any advice for, for folks, you know, going about their normal day-to-day -day business or the things that you learned? Are there any tips or tricks where people can do a better job with these things? Richard Nisbet's book, uh, Mindware, and his Coursera course are, are if, if you have it, some time to, to spend, good ways to gird yourself against these, these things. You know, it, it's a little bit tricky because there are so many of them. There's, you know, the Wikipedia page for cognitive biases has lists 185 of them. Hmm. 
some of them are, are, are sort of dubious or trivial, but there's a good solid hundred or so, I think, and they're different. And it's hard to be aware of all of them at any one time. Somebody sent me an email after this article came out that I thought was pretty interesting. And I think she's a trainer of some sort and said that one thing she tells people is be very aware of your desire to be right and your dislike of being wrong. And to sort of uh, scrutinize oneself, interrogate oneself on the political spectrum, uh, which is something that's really out there now in terms of confirmation bias, we've got more or less two opposing sides on politics in the country that are really uh, you know, at arms against each other metaphorically. I hope it stays metaphorically. And everybody is so committed to their side and really subject to confirmation bias. So everything they see, they interpret in the light of their side. And to just interrogate that and scrutinize that and think about, well, is it more important for me to be right and my side to get ahead or to kind of address the issues and problems facing us? A sort of self-consciousness, I think, is always a good thing. Joe, lots to take in there. Yes, yes. I love what he says about confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the one reason I always say don't get your political news from social media. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Nowhere is there a bigger echo chamber formed by confirmation bias that seems to amplify itself than social media. Yeah. And I've actually seen posts on, on social media where I just start typing over and over again, don't get your political news from Facebook, don't get your political... And people <laughs> people have reacted going, well, just because you think we're wrong... I. I don't think you're wrong. That's not my point. My point is don't get your political news here. Yeah. As a friend of mine pointed out uh, in the uh, leading up to the midterms, you know, we the, the people we like, we give the benefit of the doubt and the people we don't like, we don't give the benefit right. of the doubt. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> the same thing. That's that's confirmation bias. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of the sunk cost fallacy and scams. We had a, a story oh, yeah. about a guy that lost a lot of his retirement saving and then somebody called him up and said, hey, you can get some of that money back if you. Come after me. Fortunately, he didn't fall for that scam. Yeah, for but the low, were, low price of whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Anchoring effect. It's funny. He says that there's always something expensive on the menu. And a lot of times I go and I see it's lamb. And I like lamb. Yeah. I like lamb so much that I might be willing to pay the price for it. But frequently when I get lamb, you know what I, when I, when I see lamb on the menu and I order it, I get the response, oh, we're out of the lamb. Really? Really. Oh. So I'm thinking that they don't even have lamb. Interesting. They just put it on the menu for this anchoring effect. Yeah, that's interesting. That's old paranoid Joe talking about restaurants now. But like Ben said, this is pretty innocuous. I'm not too concerned about it. Yeah, you know, there's a local uh, guitar store in, in town and they would always advertise in the phone book back when you looked things up in the phone book that, you know, if you came in and, and visited and tried out playing in a guitar, they had a free amp that you could have, you know, a little tiny little Free amp. Yeah, practice amp. Free, free little practice amp. Yep, just come on in. And they were always out of the amp. Right. Oh, decades. They never had that amp in stock. But they were happy to give you a couple bucks off of a guitar that you buy instead. <laughs> right? right? That's so, actually called bait and switch, and that might be illegal. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. But uh, so it goes. Thanks to the 